6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 9 through 12. He fortified the strongholds, put captains in them in the store of victuals and of oil and wine. And in every several city he put shields and spears and made them exceeding strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. And the priests, now get this, verse 13 is an important verse I want you to be sensitive to. And the priests and the Levites that were in all Israel resorted to him out of all their coasts. Now get the picture. If you're a Levite, you did not inherit land in the first place. You had 48 cities. And your inheritance was God. You were all involved in the administration of the temple and the Levitical practices. Now you're in a region now that's under leadership that's hostile to the leadership you're loyal to, which is the temple. So what do you guys do, Levites? You up and move, those that are faithful, move south to join Rehoboam. With all his faults, he still has the temple, the priests, and all of that. So the priests and the Levites. Priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. You know the difference. Okay. The priests and the Levites that were in all Israel resorted to him, to whom Rehoboam, out of all their coasts. For the Levites left their suburbs and their possession and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. And he ordained, that is Jeroboam ordained, him priests for the high places and for the devils and for the calves which they had made. Jeroboam sets up golden calves in Dan and Bethel and sets up his own priesthood to worship calves. If you are a Levite, that's an anathema. That's what you're delivered from. So when you see all that going on, you get out of town. You go down where it's politically correct to worship properly, right? You with me? It's important to understand that. I'm going to suggest, it doesn't say this, but I'm going to suggest that if you're down south and you're not faithful to the temple, you've had enough of all that stuff, you want to worship idols, where would you move? Up north, where it's politically correct. So there's a commingling of tribes. Don't confuse a label that's geographic with a label that's ethnic. You with me? Important to understand. Because there's more confusion about not making that description. So let's go on. And after them, now notice this, after them, that's the Levites, out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong three years. For three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon. What it doesn't say, but I would assume that the... the, the, the uh, malcontents, whoever they might be, would go up north and hang with the Jeroboam and his gang. You with me? Jeroboam, by the way, under Jeroboam I, they become incredibly prosperous up north. 
That's the whole mission of Hosea is to go up there and explain to them. They think, they think they've got it great, but not in God's eyes. That's later, but get the picture. We have this myth that's all through English literature called the Ten Lost Tribes. And the idea is down south you had Benjamin and Judah. Up north you had all the rest of these guys. They affiliate themselves with the northern kingdom, the southern, Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. By 722, God takes Assyria, he uses Assyria to wipe out the northern kingdom. In 722, the Assyrians conquer the northern and deport them. They become slaves. They never appear again in history. They not only deport them individually, they scatter them. They had a policy of mixing, commingling. Captains from elsewhere, they planted in their place. They, planted, they, they, they deliberately broke down the national the identity of the northern kingdom. And the theory is that the, the tribes that were up there are lost because they then filter all through Europe and they become all kinds, there's all kinds of legends that derive from the so-called lost ten tribes. That's all, those, all, those are speculations that come out of a misreading of the scripture. Let's take a look at the tally here. The southern kingdom consists of Judah, Simeon, because it got assimilated into Judah earlier. So you got Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. That's the southern kingdom. No problem. What makes up the northern kingdom? Ephraim, that's the dominant one, and the word Ephraim often becomes uh, the, the synecdoche or the generic for the whole group. When they speak of Ephraim, they, often, they mean the whole bunch often. Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, Gad, and Reuben, and Dan. Whoops, there's one more missing, the Levites. Except the Levites have joined the southern kingdom, right? We know that for sure. Well, if there are four tribes in the south, how many are there in the north? Eight. So there aren't ten lost tribes. There might be eight. Okay, so if somebody says, but ten lost tribes, ask them the name. What ten are you talking about? You'll discover right away it, dis it, it doesn't hold any substance to reality. If there are some lost for some reason, these, these labels are geographic, not tribal. Because by then there's commingling going on for all kinds of reasons. Are we together so far? Okay. This is the basis. There's a concept of British Israelism you'll run into and uh, all other kinds of legends that derive from this idea. It's amazing how militant some people are at clinging to these views. They're really quite incidental to our purposes. And at the same time, um, you'll find a, uh, this, this whole Ten Lost Tribe idea is, from, is a misconception from a misreading of Second Kings 17 and Second Chronicles 6 and following. That's confusing the tribal terms rather than the geography. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, which incidentally included remnants of all 12 tribes, they scattered their captives throughout the empire and repopulated the area, local area, with captives from elsewhere. They did, that was their policy. These descendants then in this area were known as Samaritans. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, gets conquered by Assyria. The people that they actually leave there and don't transport are in effect considered half-Jews because they're commingled with other captives of the Assyrians. They did that deliberately to break down the uh, ethnic barriers. That's why the Samaritans were viewed upon by Jews as half-Jews because they had roots but they were, co they were contaminated in the Jewish mind. And you see that mentioned in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, speaks of the 12 tribes. The epistles of James and 1 Peter are addressed to the 12 tribes. There aren't 10 lost. See, the faithful voted with their feet before the Assyrian captivity, long before that. Substantial numbers of the northern tribes identified themselves with the house of David. They moved down south. 
when Jer Jeroboam uh, rebelled, uh, it caused many to repudiate the northern kingdom and unite with the southern kingdom in common alliance. That's what we just read about with the Levites, but it goes all the way through. You can find it in uh, Second in uh, Second Chronicles 19, 30, 20, uh, 34, and on and on and on. In 930 B.C., Jeroboam ruled the northern kingdom from his capital in Samaria. Jeroboam turned the northern kingdom to idolatry. The Levites obviously migrated south. Horrified that Jeroboam set up a rival religion, calf worship, both at Bethel and Dan, many northern, northerners moved south knowing that the only place acceptable to God was the temple on Mount Moriah. That, that, that did it. It's my inference that those who favored idolatry would migrate north. It doesn't say so. But that's a natural inference. Later on, next, the next king we're going to see after Rehoboam is Asa in the south. When he reigned as king in the south, another great company also came from the north. Second Chronicles 15, we'll deal with that. And years after the deportation by Assyria, King Hezekiah of Judah issued a call to all Israel to come to worship at Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. In other words, even uh, long after the, the deportation of the northern kingdom, Hezekiah could call all Israel, not just Judah, all Israel to come worship. In 2 Chronicles 30, we'll see that. Eighty years later, King Josiah of Judah will issue a call and offering the temple to come back from Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel. You see, you'll find, if you're watching, this whole ten loss thing is a fiction. It doesn't jibe with the text at all. See, eventually all twelve tribes are represented in the south and all twelve tribes are also in the north. And uh, in, first, in Second Chronicles 11, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin. We read that in chapter 11. And uh, so the main point I want to get you sensitized to is distinguish between the tribal designations and the territories allocated. They're, these are geographic terms, not ethnic terms. That's the point I'm trying to get across. And incidentally, Ephraim is sometimes used as a generic for the northern kingdom. The tribe of Judah is actually a phrase used generically for the whole southern kingdom. It doesn't mean just the tribe of Judah. It means the, the zone that, and, and his allies. So, so. so in 724, Shalmaneser V besieged uh, Samaria for three years. And uh, King Isaiah of Israel attempted to revolt against paying the Assyrians the tribute money. He, that was a big mistake. He had a treaty with the Pharaoh of Egypt, but that didn't help any. He gets white. He, the Samaria, the, the capital of uh, Jeroboam's uh, world, fell in 722 B.C. They pulled down towers, took captives, placed the Assyrian ruler over the city and looted it and so forth. And they impl implemented their policy of mixing conquered people to keep, from them, keep them from organizing a revolt. So the Israeli captives were mixed with Persians and others and strangers from far-off lands were settled in Samaria. And that led to the mixed populations. Interestingly enough, not all of the northern kingdom was deported. Archaeologists have covered annals of the Assyrian Sar uh, Sargon, which tells that he carried away only 27,290 people. That's a relatively small number. And about 50 chariots, according to biblical archaeologists in 1943. Essence of the population were maybe up to half a million. So less than 120th were actually deported. Most of them were just commingled with other, commingled with other tribes. Later on, the Babylonians are going to conquer the northern uh, Assyria. And when they do, the Babylonian captives and the, the captives that they inherit with Syria will be commingled again. So again, we got all 12 tribes involved in both, both things here. And Isaiah takes in prophesying to Judah, refers to them as the house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel. He's using the term Israel then in its, in its collective total sense. The word Israel then can refer in some context just to the northern kingdom, which is what they call themselves. It can also mean the whole nation in, as a unified nation. That's the idea. 
And uh, when the Babylonians later take the overseer, the descendants of the ten tribes, or so-called ten tribes, are probably again commingled with the other captives. The New Testament says the same thing. Jesus says, I've offered you, I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's a collective term for the nation. Other tribes in Judah are mentioned specifically as being represented in the land, in all through the New Testament. Twelve tribes are talked about in Acts 26 and James 1.1 1, 1 and so forth. The reason, this, the reason hitting this so hard is this is also the root of anti-Semitism. People who tend to try to make, start, they make, start making, trying to make distinctions between the term, the term Jew and Israelite. Well, a Jew means Judah, and Israelite means, again, they're trying to build something on the separation. No, and that's not biblical. Ezra calls the returning remnant from captivity, he calls them Jews eight times, he calls them Israel 40 times. He calls them all Israel in another verse. Nehemiah calls them Jews 11 times, calls them Israel 22 times, all Israel being back in the land in Nehemiah 12.47. In other words, these terms are not uh, uh, discriminatory the way some people try to make them. You want to be on your guard for that. that imply the, when you hear someone start to do that, they have an agenda. Be careful. Malachi also indicates that the entire remnant was called the nation. Malachi 1.1 1, 1 and elsewhere. And remember Anna in Luke 2? She knew she was the identity of Asher. She knew what tribe she belonged from. Paul knew what tribe he was from. He was the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Jew and an Israelite. He's using those terms interchangeably. Paul was an Israelite and he was a Jew. But he was from Benjamin, not Judah. You see what I'm getting at? These people who try to make those distinctions are pursuing an agenda. The New Testament uses the term Israel 75 times in 73 verses. It uses the Jew 174 times. At the Feast of Pentecost, Peter cries, Ye men of Judea, Acts 2, verse 14. A couple of verses later, he says, Ye men of Israel. Same group, same audience. Holy Spirit's underlining something here for us, I believe. And then a couple of verses later, he says, All the house of Israel, using it in the national sense. So they're regathered as one. That's what the dry bones vision, Ezekiel 36 and 37, declares that Judah, Jews and Israel will be joined as one at the regathering. So there, are no ten, there aren't tribes that are lost. Okay? And this is true today. They're being regathered. And all this underscores is the total physical descendants were not the people to whom the promises were made. To get into that one, get into Romans 9, verses 4 through 7. It's speaking to the Israel of God, not just the fact that they have Jewish blood. It's a whole other issue. Not just the physical. The physical descendancy is not the issue. Anyway, moving on. And Rehoboam took him, Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, to, be, to wife, and Abihail, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse, which bare him children, Jewish, Shemariah, and Jeham. And after her, he took Makkah, the daughter of Absalom, which bare him Abijah, and Atai, and Aziza, and Shalemith. And Rehoboam loved Makkah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and his concubines, for he took 18 wives and threescore concubines. <laughs> Guys must have been exhausted. <laughs> and begot twenty and eight sons and threescore daughters. And Rehoboam made Abijah, the son of Makkah, the chief, to be ruler among his brethren, for he thought to make him king. He dealt wisely and dispersed of all his children throughout the countries of Judah and Benjamin unto every fenced city, and he gave them victual in, uh, in abundance, and he desired many wives. So everything's going swell, it would seem, until we get to the end of Rehoboam. We have an attack by Egypt that God uses here. It came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself and forsook the law of lords. That's his mistake. 
He's doing pretty good. He made some mistakes about taxation, but he made some other mistakes. He forsook the law of the Lord, and all Israel with him. It came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak the king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed the law against the Lord. Rehoboam had not been ruling long, obviously, and it became that his border fortifications were not adequate to guard Judah against the invasion of the Egyptian army under King Shishak. That's pretty obvious. Shishak was the founder of the 22nd dynasty. We're going to be particularly interested in the 25th dynasty, a few dynasties coming. But Shishak had earlier given asylum to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam was a buddy of the king. And so the king is attacking the enemy of his buddy, the southern kingdom. See how the, you, can, you can just imagine the politics here. Rehoboam's fifth year, the Lord brought Shishak as a punishment for Rehoboam's sin of abandoning the law of the Lord. Continuing the text then with 1,200 chariots and threescore thousand, 60,000, that's a formidable bunch in any man's army. And the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt, the Lubims, the Sukims, and the Ethiopians. And by the way, something you may not realize, in, those, in that era, the Ethiopians were the successful warriors, very powerful group. That's not obvious, you know, unless you've done some study of African, ancient African history. And he took the fenced cities which pertained to Judah and came to Jerusalem. Shimei the prophet said to Rehoboam and to the prince of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, said to them, Thus saith the Lord, ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Boy, can you imagine the king hearing that from the prophet of God? Ooh-wee. Thus saith the Lord. That's always a disturbing opening. Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Whereupon the prince of Israel and king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. Boy, that's interesting. They acknowledge. They don't make excuses. They acknowledge it. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shimei, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants, that they may know my service, and the servants of the kingdoms of the countries. So Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Where does it say anything about the Ark of the Covenant? If they mentioned the shields of gold, you'd think they would have mentioned the Ark if they had gotten it. See, there's a big argument among scholars. Some say they think the Ark of the Covenant disappeared in the attack of Shishak. And there's evidence to the contrary. But I just want you to be aware, that's one of six theories about the Ark of the Covenant, that Shishak took it. There's no evidence archaeologically uh, or textually to support that. But he did carry away treasures, obviously. Shields of gold which Solomon made. Instead of which, King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. They're probably more practical anyway. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again into the guard chamber. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether, and also in Judah. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned, for Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord hath chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His, mother, his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Wow. What a sentence. Think about that for ourselves. 
Do we do evil when we fail to prepare our heart to seek the Lord? You know, read these quaint expressions in the Old Testament. They may not come home to roost, but we're probably in his shoes. When we fail to prepare our heart to seek the Lord, we're sinning. We're not only, dis not only dis disenfranchising ourselves from a benefit, we're actually indulged in sin. Now the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemiah the prophet and of Edo the seer concerning genealogies? And there, were, and there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah, his son, reigned in his stead. So there we are. Abijah and Asa are the two kings we're going to see in the next session. I want you to read for next session, 2 Chronicles 13 through 16. We're going to, as we continue the rest of the book of 2 Chronicles, there's going to be a number of kings show up, but the key ones you're going to keep an eye out for is Asa, next time, then Jehoshaphat, very colorful issue there, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Those are names I want you to be tuned into. Between Hezekiah and Josiah, there's a bad apple by the name of Manasseh. And you want to understand how bad that was in order to understand the peculiar things that occur in the days of Josiah. And you really want to understand, you re this is all in preparation to get to chapter 35 of Second Chronicles, which is alone the, worth, the price of the course, so to speak. Because uh, there's, some really, there's some surprises there in the text that have been overlooked by, I would say, more than 9 out of 10 students that go through it. So we'll have some fun. But Second Chronicles 13 six, through 16, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bar our hearts. Well, Father, as we are stunned by the lack of gratitude of your servants, like Rehoboam and others, as we read in the Scripture, how, they, how you so abundantly treat them and yet how miserably they failed to acknowledge you and to, walk in, to remain walking in your ways. And yet as we watch that, Father, we recognize and acknowledge our own failures in exactly the same way. You have showered abundance upon us. We live in a land that is so abundant that it's the envy of the world. We live in a culture that has enjoyed the greatest religious freedom in the history of the earth. Founded by a legacy of God-fearing geniuses that created the liberties that we now enjoy. And yet, Father, through our neglect, through our ingratitude, through our presumptions, we're guilty of the same sins of ingratitude that characterize these men that you so blessed in the text. Oh, Father, that we might more fully appreciate who you are. We live in a culture that denies your creation, that blinds itself deliberately to the elegance of your designs,
in that creation. A culture that denies the very existence of truth. And we know, Father, that your word is truth. So, Father, we come before your throne humbly acknowledging our sin, our unworthiness. The only thing we're worthy of is your judgment, Father. And yet, Father, we stagger as we realize the extremes you've gone to to have your Son pay our price, pay the price of our wickedness, our sin, our failures to acknowledge you, to worship you, put you first. We acknowledge that as sin, Father, and we flee for refuge in your infinite mercy. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son through whom we have access to you in the first place. We do pray, Father, that you would forgive us. You promised to, if we confess it, Father, that you would be faithful forgive us, and to cleanse us. So, Father, we seek that cleansing. We pray, Father, that you would reignite in each of us a renewed passion for your word, a new hunger for your wisdom, a, a renewed priority, priority to seek your face. Oh, Father, how we do seek to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength and all our mind. Help us, Father, to be more fruitful stewards of your abundance, of the opportunities that you put before us. Guide us, Father. Lead us, Father. Equip us, Father. But above all, Father, cleanse us that we indeed might have fellowship with you. As we come to you, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Second Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music